How do you take down a criminal network hidden in the shadows? I tell them that I know that they're the ones who are running the largest child abuse website on the darknet. The journalists working to expose the darkest corners of the internet. That's your playroom floor. That's your baby's clothes. That's my house. The police who hunt down online predators. Did we create the environment that they're using? No, we didn't. We didn't make it. They made it. Hunting Warhead. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. Welcome Welcome to to Chosen Chosen Family. Every second week, we talk about art, sexuality, and identity with a special guest. Usually queer, but not always. I completely struggled coming out to my parents as a comedian. Being in the entertainment industry for Middle Eastern people is unheard of. Affecting change requires people to shake it up. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. What sign are you, by the way? I'm an Aries. Of course, I love it. (laughs) Welcome to the best of white coat black art in the summer. 15. Armed. To mark the 50th anniversary of the first lunar landing this week, minus 10, nine, we're bringing you an interview I did seven, with Canadian astronaut six, Dave Williams that first aired in January. Three, two, one, zero, and liftoff of Space Shuttle Endeavour, expanding the International Space Station while creating a classroom in space. Whose heart doesn't race at the sound of liftoff from Cape Canaveral? In August 2007, the space shuttle Endeavour blasted into space with a crew of seven, including one very proud Canadian, Dr. Dave Williams. Dave Williams uh, coming up from the mid-deck fairly quickly. He's uh, in charge of uh, using a uh, camera with a long-range lens to uh, document the tank out the overhead uh, windows. That's no minor job. Williams was tasked with taking photos of the shuttle's exterior to make sure there'd be no repeat of the Columbia disaster. Rick Mistracchio on the left, Dave Williams on the right as they uh, assess uh, the position of soft capture pins. This was Williams' second space flight, a mission that included a Canadian record three spacewalks totaling 17 hours. That's a long time. Hey, if you're happy, yeah, I'm happy. We could have a uh, torch move into the launch box removal position. Okay, and uh, my safety tether is clear, my hands are clear. Staring at the clear blue earth during his final spacewalk made him realize just how much life can be prepared for and packed into a single exquisite moment. It also helped inspire his new memoir, Defying Limits, Lessons from the Edge of the Universe. That uh, Sujata wanted you to wax a little bit more. What did you have for breakfast today? What did I have for breakfast today? Well, that's a good question. You know, I love to start the day with coffee, which is a very important thing. When I'm in space, you have to have Kona coffee because it's as we the sat only down to speak in our Toronto studio, and I began to realize Williams and I have a lot in common. We both dreamed of flying into space. Williams, from the moment he watched Alan Shepard lift off aboard Freedom Seven and me watching John Glenn become the first American to orbit the Earth. And we were both emergency physicians before we got the call to do other things. Williams was director of the emergency department at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto when he learned he was one of four people out of 5,000 applicants to be named as Canadian astronauts. Describe that moment when you got the news that you were accepted. 
So, of course, when you get the news, you're told you can't tell anybody because it has to remain confidential until the press conference, and no one wants this to be scooped or leaked or anything like that. So I was teaching an advanced cardiac life support course at Sunnybrook. It was around 1 in the afternoon, Saturday afternoon. My pager goes off, and I, it could be anybody, right? It's, so I go to phone, call locating, and they say, there's an outside call. So I'm thinking, well, it's either the space agency or it's my wife. And um, anyway, it turned out to be the space agency, and I thought... Given that they said they were calling at noon, I thought, well, they're just calling to tell me I wasn't selected because it's now one o'clock. So when Arlene Marchand started by saying, congratulations, I think, wow, this is incredible because I was expecting the opposite. And then, of course, I couldn't tell anybody. I had to go back to teaching the class and not share my excitement. Uh, were you able to stay focused on on advanced cardiac life support for the rest of the afternoon? I was, yeah. It, uh, it was hard, though, I have to admit. And uh, that evening, my wife and I celebrated. It was fantastic. So you had this massive grin on your face from ear to ear for the rest of the afternoon and nobody and you couldn't tell anybody why. Well, I actually had to avoid the grin because there were a few people in the class that knew that I was part of the selection process and everybody kind of knew that we were going to be hearing fairly soon. So if I came in kind of grinning in excitement, I think the cat would have been out of the bag and rumors would have started. So I actually had to look very serious. Um, so you moved to Houston and went into training. You uh, were assigned a mission, and you were days from liftoff when something happened that made your two careers, emergency physician and astronaut, suddenly intersect. And I gather it began with the ring of a doorbell. It did, and it's unbelievable how some of these things happen in life. I was sitting studying the shuttle crew operator's manual, you know, in the final preparation for getting ready for liftoff. Doorbell rings, go to the door, and there's somebody standing there who's quite agitated and said, do you know CPR? And I'm thinking, this isn't a survey. So I said, yes, I do. I'm actually an emergency physician. They said, please come with us. There's somebody who's in distress down the street. We go running down the street, and in the driveway, there was about an 18-year-old teenage girl who was in extremis. She had a respiratory arrest. She was blue. And uh, I get down on my hands and knees. And of course, you have no equipment with you. And we all understand the importance of universal precautions, especially before we're about to go into quarantine for a space flight. So I remember looking down thinking, okay, well, it's time to do mouth to mouth. And the flight docs will just have to figure this out tomorrow. And I started doing mouth to mouth resuscitation on her. Paramedics arrived. We intubated her, gave her medication, and uh, basically saved her life. She was discharged from the hospital two days later. So how close were you, how many days were you from the actual liftoff when that happened? Oh, that was probably two weeks before liftoff. And if this young girl was in respiratory distress because she had a respiratory infection and you did mouth-to-mouth on her, what were the stakes? What could have happened? Well, it could have been problematic because the worst that would have happened is I became sick. And, uh, you know, that would have had an impact on our launch date uh, and things. We might have had to delay the mission a little bit if I was really sick. A lot of it depends on how sick you actually get. But we've had crews in space before with upper respiratory tract infections, and that's a significant problem that we would want to avoid. We had we had Robert Thirsk in the in the studio talking about a wicked cold that got around, and and all of the and, you know in, in the uh, in, in the International Space Station, and uh, and and the implications of that. Could you have been scrubbed from the mission? I think there's always a possibility you can be scrubbed, and uh, as a result, they don't want us participating in risky activities. You know, downhill skiing, for instance, you don't want to be doing that and break your leg three four months before 
liftoff because that would be problematic as well. But you, you made it. Uh, your first uh, space flight was dubbed the Neurolab mission. What the heck is that? So it was a mission understanding how the brain and nervous system adapted to being in space. And of course, the crew were not only the researchers, we were the experimental subjects as well. But we had adult rats, baby rats, mice, oyster toadfish, sword tailfish. We had crickets in space, all to understand this concept of neuronal plasticity and how the absence of gravity challenges the nervous system to change and adapt to this unique environment. The, the space flight was successful, and almost immediately after your first flight into space, you got an invitation to join the senior management team at NASA by becoming director of space and life sciences directorate. That was a huge deal. It was a really huge deal. In fact, when the center director, George Abbey, called me and asked me to take the job, I didn't fully understand how big a deal this really was. But when the center director says, uh, Dave, I'd like you to take on this new role, of course, I'd be more than honored to be able to do it. And I was able to work with that team for four years. It was an incredible journey. Williams was in charge of more than 1,000 employees at the Johnson Space Center and helped set up the National Space Biomedical Research Institute at Baylor University. His other job was overseeing healthcare on the International Space Station, which meant making the call on a 77-year-old senator from Ohio. The first medical decision that I made was whether or not Senator Glenn could fly in space at really? age 77. And uh, yeah, so we all approved uh, Senator Glenn flying, and it was remarkable to see him fly in space at age 77. How did you, what, what were the factors that you were using to weigh uh, that decision? So essentially, we approach it like we would with any other astronaut. We look at an individual's medical history. We look at the requirements for spaceflight, and we make sure that the individual is going to be able to uh, perform successfully. And there, Senator Glenn was in great shape. I can say all this. It's a matter of public record, but he was in great shape and did an incredible job on the mission. This is beautiful. The best part is to do a trite old statement, zero G, and I feel fine. I don't know what happens on down the line, but today is beautiful and great, and Hawaii is just, I just can't even describe it. And be able to let the record show that uh, that John has a smile on his face, and it goes from one ear to the other one, and we haven't been able to remove it yet. Now, of course, you weren't just a physician there. You were an astronaut who had recently come back from space, and, and I, I, I think that almost every astronaut wants to go back to space, so, so you must have been pulling for him. Yes, there's no question. And uh, the whole time that I was in management, after about two years of management, I'm thinking, how can I get back into the astronaut training flow again? But uh, management is also a very great honor because we helped put humans on the International Space Station. You um, re-entered the pool of astronauts and were assigned a mission uh, to the ISS, the International Space Station, and that was STS-118. And you were in the early stages of prepping for that mission, but before that, as we all know, there was STS-107, the Columbia disaster. We're getting word of that explosion about 10 minutes ago in Texas. Once again, Space Shuttle Columbia has been missing for the last 33 minutes. Mission Control lost contact with the space shuttle at 9 a.m. Eastern time. It was scheduled to land. About I know where I was when Columbia disintegrated on re-entry. Um, this may sound trivial, but I was with my son who had just turned one. I was with my partner in Tamara in, of all places, a furniture store. I actually remember it with, you know, because there were TVs on. Search and rescue teams in the Dallas-Fort Worth area have been alerted. No communications or tracking of any type 
was received after 8 a.m. Central Time along Columbia's planned route toward the Kennedy Space Center. Where were you? So I was at home in Houston watching on uh, NASA television, and as soon as the vehicle started to break up, as soon as we had any indication of that, I got a phone call from Rich Williams, the chief medical officer at NASA. And Rich was saying, hey, you're seeing what's going on? I said, yeah. So said, well, why don't you go into Johnson Space Center and give me a call once you're there? So I went into JSC and uh, called back, spoke to Rich, and literally about four and a half, five hours later, I was in northeastern Texas participating in the recovery. Did you know all the astronauts on board? I had uh, three classmates who were very, very close friends, and the four other crew members were very close friends as well. So seven friends, three classmates. It was a tragedy beyond the proportion. How do you, how do you cope with with a trauma like that of course it's it's the trauma for the families as well but but you're also your close friends and you're just and you watched it our sense of loss there's no words to describe that one of the things that i was able to do is you cope by leaping into doing something to distract you from the reality of what's actually just happened. And my doing something role took me up to northeastern Texas for probably three, four days. And then I was back at Johnson Space Center. That's when it really hit me hard is when you didn't have anything to distract you and you realize the magnitude of the loss and you're going to the funerals for all of your friends and being there with their family members. It's just uh, unbelievably tragic. And in in northeastern Texas, you were assisting the the FBI at the recovery site? Yes, yeah, Uh, because it was important for us to be able to recover as much as we could of the vehicle, recover the crew, learn what we could from the mishap to be able to return the space shuttle to flying as soon as possible. Not to get into morbid details, but did you recognize anything of the wreckage that you were seeing? You know, we had volunteers from the U.S. Forestry Service that were out in the field recovering uh, debris from the orbiter. And uh, there were a couple of times when I was out in the field with these volunteers. And you would see small little pieces of tile from the orbiter about the size of a quarter. And then there'd be a larger section of the orbiter itself. You know, uh, it could be a couple square feet of tile. It could be a piece of metal from the window frame around the flight deck window and things. Interestingly, film cartridges were recovered with the film inside intact, and they were able to develop that film and see the images of the crew in space. So it was a wide range of debris that was recovered, but all of this helped us understand what actually happened, the failure in the leading edge of the port wing that was caused by the foam coming off the external tank. Do astronauts feel survivor guilt? Uh Perhaps to a degree. I think what we felt certainly was exemplified in our crew because we had Barb Morgan on the crew. Barb had been the backup for Krista McAuliffe and Challenger. We all felt that the critical need to return to flight to honor the legacy of these crew members that were lost on 107, Challenger, and Apollo 1. So our desire was to get back to flying. And uh, we understood that we would learn from the mishap. We would implement changes to the program to make the program safer. But in many ways, it was a tragedy beyond proportion, almost hard to describe in words how uh, big the loss was. It was also America at its finest. Volunteers came from all over the United States. We had volunteer forestry service workers who were willingly searching huge swaths of forest, going through the trees, trying to find bits of the orbiter to help us out. We had volunteers coming in saying, how can I help? People sending food, people sending supplies. It was truly remarkable watching everybody come together to be able to respond to this tragic loss. 
You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, our first show of 2019 is a conversation with Canadian astronaut and fellow ER physician, Dr. Dave Williams. His new book, Defying Limits, is a memoir of his careers in medicine and the space program. After an investigation that followed the Columbia disaster, NASA put space flights back on schedule, including STS-118, the one to which Williams had been assigned. Then came a serious medical problem that threatened to derail his second trip into space. There were investigations and and the problems were resolved. And uh, while there was a, a temporary halting of, of, of space flights, they resumed. And uh, But you had one more major challenge before you got back into space. At age 50, you were diagnosed with prostate cancer. Uh, reading that passage in the book, that was the, one of the few times when I got the sense that you were frightened. You know, it's interesting as physicians, especially emergency physicians, we're used to dealing with unforeseen circumstances. We're used to resuscitations. These sorts of things happen all the time. It's a different story when you're on the receiving end of the information. When someone looks you straight in the eye and says, you have cancer, and all of a sudden you've joined a club that you have no desire to join, the cancer club. And despite all my medical training, as soon as I was told I had cancer, I thought, I'm going to die. And, you know, it took a while for me to get around the fact that I don't need to respond emotionally. I have to respond intellectually and figure this out and solve it like I would if I was treating another patient. So that kicked in about 24 hours later, but the news was devastating in the beginning. You know, even back then, doctors were beginning to think of prostate cancer as not being all that dangerous, you know, watchful waiting. In fact, there are, today, it wasn't true then, but today there, there are some who believe that certain, uh, certain degrees of prostate cancer shouldn't even be called a cancer. But you were very concerned about it. Were there other reasons why you were concerned? Well, I think, you know, despite our knowledge today and the concept of watchful waiting, there are many young men who've died from prostate cancer in their late 40s, mid-50s. And I had no way of knowing if my cancer was going to be as invasive. In fact, when they did the pathology later on, it, it was invasive and I would not have been a candidate for watchful waiting. Fortunately, I elected to have an open radical prostatectomy. I did not go for a minimally invasive approach. That led the surgeon, Dr. Peter Scardino, who's a remarkably talented surgeon, to be able to find metastatic tumor outside the boundaries of the excision area. So he got the metastatic tumor as well. And as a result, I'm a surgical cure. Um, was there a sense that I've got to beat this thing or I won't get back into space? Oh, there's absolutely no question. You know, it, it was actually a sense of I've got to beat this thing or maybe I might not live. And then you go from there to the practical reality of thinking, you know, you have hope, right? You think that, okay, I'm, I'm going to survive this. And then you begin to wonder, can I actually go and fly in space again? But I had to get back my med medical certification as an astronaut, as a pilot. I lost everything when I went for surgery, but I was able to get it back within about four months months after the mission. You had your surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center in New York City, which is one of the top cancer centers in the United States. As a Canadian, you got to see U.S.-style medicine up close. You know, eventually you got to be uh, the CEO of a hospital here in Canada. What did you take away from your time as a patient at Sloan Kettering? So there are a number of things. You know, I went into the hospital as a clinician, astronaut clinician, sort of understanding that, yes, 
patients uh, are taken care of in the institution, et cetera. But as soon as I was told, put the gown on and lie down on the stretcher, I went from being a physician to being a patient. And I began to understand what the journey of a patient is really all about. During my post-operative recovery, I'd get out of bed and I'd hobble around the corridor, you know, limping and holding an IV pole and barely able to hold myself up. And the cleaner would be coaching me. He says, Dave, you're looking good today. You're walking better. You're standing up straighter. <laughs> Thank goodness, you know. But at the end of the five-day hospital admission, one of the nurses came in to take out my IVs and she looks me straight in the eye and says, you're a doctor, aren't you? And I said, well, actually, yes, I am. She said, do you learn anything while you're in here? And I said, in fact, I have. She said, you will remember, won't you? And I promise I'll remember. And that helped me as a CEO at Southlake, understanding the importance of the patient perspective. You've lived and worked in Canada and in the United States. You've been a cancer patient in the U.S. and more recently the CEO of a hospital in Canada. Um, we sure know that America Americans are worried about the state of health care in their country. What's your take on the current state of health care in Canada? You know, healthcare will always have challenges. No matter what country you're in, how we deliver healthcare, there's going to be challenges. We have an aging population, a myriad of issues that we're confronting. But what's really interesting is the lesson of spaceflight, the importance of collaboration and working together helps us solve these challenges. And we were able to do that at Southlake. We created uh, what we called the joint centers, five hospitals working together collaboratively to share their outcome data and best practices so that we can provide the ultimate in patient experience, not just at Southlake, but in all those hospitals as well. We can learn from each other. Can you think of an example of that? So in many cases, uh, C. diff rates in the hospital would be a great example where the, the incidence of this hospital-acquired infection, C. diff, changes quite significantly. Some hospitals have very low rates. Some hospitals have very high rates. We'd look at our rate and we'd say, this is where we're at, and we'd find a hospital that's better. We'd get on the phone. We'd call them no matter where they were. You actually did that. And, oh, yes, we actually did that. And we call them and say, what are you doing? And we try and take that those lessons learned and implement them in our hospital. And yet we seem to have these intractable problems. Uh, they're still trying to solve the problem of hallway medicine. Did you have hallway medicine at Southlake? We had hallway medicine back in the 1980s. Hallway medicine has been with us for more than... 10, 20 years. Hallway medicine, we have to figure out the challenge of flow. And if patients are not leaving the hospital, it's very hard for patients to actually enter the hospital. So there's a number of ways that we can deal with hallway medicine. The first is to approach the issue of patients entering the hospital. Can we actually care for people at home and use technology to prevent them from having a clinical condition that gets out of control? And I think the answer to that is yes. So we can reduce the number of people who actually come to the hospital by using technology. And at the other end, we can think about different creative solutions to getting patients out of the hospital, which we were able to do at Southlake and partner with these other hospitals, repurpose the old Humber Hospital site for long-term care. Do you think that some of our colleagues and some of the people who run the healthcare system are, are too um, respectful of the limits that seem to exist in healthcare. We have intractable problems. And, and how do you get your colleagues to defy those limits? So I think part of defying limits is to come up with creative solutions. And that means figuring something out that's incredibly difficult to be able to solve. The only way to do that is to get a whole lot of smart people, look for the best in class, find somewhere where people have found a solution, and then be able to implement the solution and do a pilot project. We now are thinking about paramedics 
clinics doing house calls to take vital sign monitoring to be able to help the elderly with medication so they don't have to come into the hospital. These are all just different creative ways of thinking about how we can work together to solve this problem. It's been 10 years since Dave Williams retired from the space program to return to Canada and eventually become president and CEO of Southlake Regional Health Centre. He's since retired from that position as well. And confirmed hatch opening, 1.37 p.m. Central Time. The International Space But he's still keeping a close eye on the Canadian Space Agency. Next out is David Saint-Jacques of the Canadian Space Agency. A warm welcome from the Expedition 57 crew. On December 3rd, David Saint-Jacques became the ninth Canadian in space. He'll be on board the ISS for six months. And, like Williams, he's a doctor. It was a fantastic launch, and I think every astronaut, when you watch a liftoff, wishes vicariously that, boy, I'd love to be on board and uh, get a chance to go back to space. But David, uh, it was an amazing liftoff. The rendezvous and docking was flawless. They opened the hatch, and he floated across with a huge smile on his face and the Canadian flag on his uniform. It was really a spectacular moment. Did you uh, get to have any words with him? Uh, no, not during the liftoff and arrival on the space station the night before to it sent an email to all the Canadian astronauts just sort of saying he's really excited to go and do this mission and kind of thanking everybody for sharing their experiences. And did you send an email back? Oh, of course, yeah. Can you say what you said? Oh, I said, have a fantastic mission. Take time to make sure you enjoy the experience because even though it's six months, it's incredible how quickly it goes by. And he'll have a lot of time to look out the window, but more importantly, to share that experience with his family. So are you, uh, Dave Williams, are you an astronaut or are you a physician? I'm both. I'm a, an astronaut that's a physician that's very passionate about providing health care in space. And it's interesting evolving from the specialty of emergency medicine and trauma care into this very vibrant field of space medicine. Well, Dave Williams, you've been on an incredible journey as an astronaut and as a fellow physician, and I'm so grateful that you took some time to share some of that with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. On his watch as CEO of South Lake Regional Health Centre, Dave Williams shored up cancer care, and he advocated for the hospital's first hospice for patients at the end of life, telling doubters that the hospital needed to give patients an opportunity to live their final moments to the fullest. Maybe he was thinking of that sublime instant when he stood in the vacuum of space and lived a lifetime just staring at the earth. He might say that as long as you have even one moment left to live, you have an entire lifetime. That's our show for this week. The landing gear is down and locked. To comment, you can post to our blog, cbc.ca slash whitecoat, or email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca. I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD, and the show is at CBC Whitecoat. Main gear touchdown. You can hear the show anytime by downloading the CBC Radio app or the Radio Player Canada app. And if you're looking for the latest in health news and analysis, Subscribe to Second Opinion at subscriptions.cbc.ca. Nose gear touchdown. 1-5 at the Kennedy Space Center wrapping up a nearly 5.3 million mile mission. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Jeff Goods and Sujata Berry with help from digital producer Ruby Buiza. Our senior producer is Donna Dingwall. That's medicine from my side of the journey. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. 
Roger, we'll stop, Endeavor. Congratulations. Welcome home. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.